Essay 9 of Conduct of Life by Ralph Waldo Emerson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Essay 9. Illusions. Flow, flow the waves hated, accursed, adored, the waves of mutation. No anchorage is. Sleep is not, death is not, who seem to die, live. House you were born in, friends of your springtime, old man and young maid, day's toil and its guerdon, they're all vanishing, fleeing to fables, cannot be moored. See the stars through them, through treacherous marbles. No, the stars yonder, the stars everlasting, are fugitive also, and emulate, vaulted, the lambent heat-lightning and firefly's flight. When thou dost return on the wave's circulation, beholding the shimmer, the wild dissipation, and, out of endeavour, to change and to flow, the gas becomes solid, and phantoms and nothings return to be things, and endless imbroglio is the law and the world. Then first shalt thou know that in the wild turmoil, horsed on the Proteus, Thou ridest to power and to endurance. Illusions Some years ago, in company with an agreeable party, I spent a long summer day in exploring the Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. We traversed through spacious galleries, affording a solid masonry foundation for the town and county overhead, the six or eight black miles from the mouth of the cavern to the innermost recess which tourists visit a niche or grotto made of one seamless stalactite, and called, I believe, Serena's Bower. I lost the light of one day. I saw high domes and bottomless pits, heard the voice of unseen waterfalls, paddled three-quarters of a mile in the deep Echo River, whose waters are peopled with a blind fish, crossed the streams Lethe and Styx, plied with music and guns, the echoes in these alarming galleries, saw every form of stalagmite and stalactite in the sculptured and fretted chambers, icicle, orange flower, acanthus, grapes, and snowball. We shot Bengal lights into the vaults and groins of the sparry cathedrals, and examined all the masterpieces which the four combined engineers, water, limestone, gravitation, and time, could make in the dark. The mysteries and scenery of the cave had the same dignity that belongs to all natural objects, and which shames the fine things to which we foppishly compare them. I remarked, especially, the mimetic habit with which nature, on new instruments, hums our old tunes, making night to mimic day, and chemistry to ape vegetation. But I then took notice, and still chiefly remember, that the best thing which the cave had to offer was an illusion— on arriving at what is called the Star Chamber, our lamps were taken from us by the guide and extinguished or put aside, and, on looking upwards, I saw, or seemed to see, the night heaven, thick with stars, glimmering more or less brightly over our heads, and even what seemed a comet flaming among them. All the party were touched with astonishment and pleasure. Our musical friends sung with much feeling a pretty song, the stars are in the quiet sky, etc. 
and I sat down on the rocky floor to enjoy the serene picture. Some crystal specks in the black ceiling high overhead, reflecting the light of a half-hit lamp, yielded this magnificent effect. I own I did not like the cave so well for eking out its sublimities with this theatrical trick, but I have had many experiences like it, before and since, and we must be content to be pleased without too curiously analysing the occasions. Our conversation with nature is not just what it seems. The cloud-rack, the sunrise and sunset glories, rainbows and northern lights are not quite so spheral as our childhood thought them and the part our organization plays in them is too large. The senses interfere everywhere, and mix their own structure with all they report of. Once we fancied the earth a plain and stationary. In admiring the sunset, we do not yet deduct the rounding, coordinating, pictorial powers of the eye. The same interference from our organization creates the most of our pleasure and pain. Our first mistake is the belief that the circumstance gives the joy which we give to the circumstance. Life is an ecstasy. Life is sweet as nitrous oxide, and the fisherman dripping all day over a cold pond, the switchman at the railway intersection, the farmer in the field, the negro in the rice swamp, the fop in the street, the hunter in the woods, the barrister with the jury, the bell at the ball, all ascribe a certain pleasure to their employment which they themselves give it. Health and appetite impart the sweetness to sugar, bread, and meat. We fancy that our civilization has got on far, but we still come back to our primers. We live by our imaginations, by our admirations, by our sentiments. The child walks amid heaps of illusions which he does not like to have disturbed. The boy, how sweet to him is his fancy, how dear the story of barons and battles! What a hero he is whilst he feeds on his heroes! What a debt is his to imaginative books! He has no better friend or influence than Scott, Shakespeare, Plutarch, and Homer. The man lives to other objects, but who dare affirm that they are more real? Even the prose of the streets is full of refractions. In the life of the dreariest alderman, fancy enters into all details and colours them with rosy hue. He imitates the air and actions of people whom he admires, and is raised in his own eyes. He pays a debt quicker to a rich man than to a poor man. He wishes the bow and compliment of some leader in the state or in society, weighs what he says, perhaps he never comes nearer to him for that, but dies at last better contented for this amusement of his eyes and his fancy. The world rolls, the din of life is never hushed, in London, in Paris, in Boston, in San Francisco, the carnival, the masquerade, is at its height. Nobody drops his domino. The unities, the fictions of the peace, it would be an impertinence to break. The chapter of fascinations is very long. Great is paint. Nay, God is the painter, and we rightly accuse the critic who destroys too many illusions. Society does not love its unmaskers. It was wittily, if somewhat bitterly, said by d'Alembert, qu'un état de vapeur est à un état très fâcheux, parce qu'il nous fait savoir les choses comme elles sont. I find men victims of illusion in all parts of life. 
children, youths, adults, and old men all are led by one bauble or another. Yoganidra, the goddess of illusion, Proteus, or Momus, or Gilfi's mocking, for the power has many names, is stronger than the Titans, stronger than Apollo. Few have overheard the gods or surprised their secret. Life is a succession of lessons which must be lived to be understood. All is riddle, and the key to a riddle is another riddle. There are as many pillows of illusion as flakes in a snowstorm. We wake from one dream into another dream. The toys, to be sure, are various and are graduated in refinement to the quality of the dupe. The intellectual man requires a fine bait. The sots are easily amused. But everybody is drugged with his own frenzy, and the pageant marches at all hours with music and banner and batch. Amid the joyous troop who give in to the charivari comes now and then a sad-eyed boy, whose eyes lack the requisite refractions to clothe the show in due glory, and who is afflicted with a tendency to trace home the glittering miscellany of fruits and flowers to one root. Science is a search after identity, and the scientific whim is lurking in all corners. At the state fair, a friend of mine complained that all the varieties of fancy pears in our orchards seems to have been selected by somebody who had a whim for a particular kind of pear, and only cultivated such as had that perfume. They were all alike. And I remember the quarrel of another youth with the confectioners that, when he racked his wit to choose the best comfits in the shops, in all the endless varieties of sweetmeat he could only find three flavours, or two. What then? Pears and cakes are good for something, and because you, unluckily, have an eye or nose too keen, why need you spoil the comfort which the rest of us find in them? I knew a humorist who, in a good deal of rattle, had a grain or two of sense. He shocked the company by maintaining that the attributes of God were two, power and risibility, and that it was a duty of every pious man to keep up the comedy. And I have known gentlemen of great stake in the community, but whose sympathies were cold, presidents of colleges and governors and senators, who held themselves bound to sign every temperance pledge and act with Bible societies and missions and peacemakers and cry, Hiss the boy, to every good dog. We must not carry comedy too far, but we all have kind impulses in this direction. When the boys come into my yard for leave to gather horse chestnuts, I own I enter into nature's game and affect to grant the permission reluctantly, fearing that any moment they will find out the imposture of that showy chaff. But this tenderness is quite unnecessary. The enchantments are laid on very thick. Their young life is thatched with them. Bare and grim to tears is the lot of the children in the hovel I saw yesterday. Yet not the less they hung it round with frippery romance, like the children of the happiest fortune, and talked of the dear cottage where so many joyful hours had flown. Well, this thatching of hovels is the custom of the country. Women, more than all, are the element and kingdom of illusion. Being fascinated, they fascinate. They see through Claude Lorraine, and how dare anyone, if he could, pluck away the coulisses, stage effects, and ceremonies by which they live. Too pathetic, 
too pitiable is the region of affection and its atmosphere always liable to mirage. We are not very much to blame for our bad marriages. We live amid hallucinations, and this especial trap is laid to trip up our feet with, and all are tripped up first or last. But the mighty mother who had been so sly with us as if she felt that she owed us some indemnity, insinuates into the Pandora box of marriage some deep and serious benefits and some great joys. We find the delight in the beauty and happiness of children that makes the heart too big for the body. In the worst assorted connections there is ever some mixture of true marriage. Teague and his jade get some just relations of mutual respect, kindly observation and fostering of each other, learn something, and would carry themselves wiselier if they were now to begin. "'Tis fine for us to point at one or another fine madman as if there were any exempts. The scholar in his library is none. I, who have all my life heard any number of orations and debates, read poems and miscellaneous books, conversed with many geniuses, am still the victim of any new page, and, if Marmaduke, or you, or Moosehead, or any other, invent a new style or mythology, I fancy that the world will be all brave and right if dressed in these colours, which I had not thought of. Then, at once, I will daub with this new paint, but it will not stick. It is like the cement which the peddler sells at the door. He makes broken crockery hold with it, but you can never buy of him a bit of the cement which will make it hold when he's gone. Men who make themselves felt in the world avail themselves of a certain fate in their constitution which they know how to use. But they never deeply interest us unless they lift a corner of the curtain or betray never so slightly their penetration of what is behind it. It is the charm of practical men that outside of their practicality are a certain poetry and play as if they let the good horse power by the bridle and preferred to walk, though they can ride so fiercely. Bonaparte is intellectual, as well as Caesar, and the best soldiers, sea captains and railway men have a gentleness when off duty, a good-natured admission that there are illusions, and who shall say that he is not their sport? We stigmatize the cast-iron fellows who cannot so detach themselves as dragon-ridden, thunder-stricken, and fools of fate, with whatever powers endowed. Since our tuition is through emblems and indirections, it is well to know that there is method in it, a fixed scale, and rank above rank in the phantasms. We begin low with coarse masks, and rise to the most subtle and beautiful. The red man told Columbus they had an herb which took away fatigue, but he found the illusion of arriving from the east at the Indies more composing to his lofty spirit than any tobacco. Is not our faith in the impenetrability of matter more sedative than narcotics? You play with jackstraws, balls, bowls, horse and gun, estates and politics, but there are finer games before you. Is not time a pretty toy? Life will show you masks that are worth all your carnivals. Yonder mountain must migrate into your mind. The fine stardust and nebulous blur in Orion the portentous year of miser and alcor, must come down and be dealt with in your household thought. What if you shall come to discern that the play and playground of all this pompous history 
are radiations from yourself, and that the sun borrows his beams. What terrible questions we are learning to ask. The former men believed in magic, by which temples, cities, and men were swallowed up, and all trace of them gone. We are coming on the secret of a magic which sweeps out of men's minds all vestige of theism and beliefs which they and their fathers held and were framed upon. There are deceptions of the senses, deceptions of the passions, and the structural, beneficent illusions of sentiment and of the intellect. There is the illusion of love, which attributes to the beloved person all which that person shares with his or her family, sex, age, or condition, nay, with the human mind itself. Tis these which the lover loves, and Anna Matilda gets the credit of them. As if one shut up always in a tower with one window, through which the face of heaven and earth could be seen, should fancy that all the marvels he beheld belonged to that window. There is the illusion of time, which is very deep. Who has disposed of it, or come to the conviction that what seems the succession of thought is only the distribution of holes into causal series. The intellect sees that every atom carries the whole of nature, that the mind opens to omnipotence, that, in the endless striving and ascents, the metamorphosis is entire, so that the soul doth not know itself in its own act when that act is perfected. There is illusion that shall deceive even the elect, there is illusion that shall deceive even the performer of the miracle. Though he make his body, he denies that he makes it. Though the world exists from thought, thought is daunted in presence of the world. One after the other, we accept the mental laws, still resisting those which follow, which, however, must be accepted. But all our concessions only compel us to new profusion. And what avails it that science has come to treat space and time as simply forms of thought, and the material world as hypothetical? And withal, our pretension of property, and even of selfhood, are fading with the rest, if, at last, even our thoughts are not finalities. But the incessant flowing and ascension reach these also, and each thought which yesterday was a finality Today is yielding to a larger generalization. With such volatile elements to work in, tis no wonder if our estimates are loose and floating. We must work and affirm, but we have no guess of the value of what we say or do. The cloud is now as big as your hand, and now it covers a county. That story of Thor, who was set to drain the drinking horn in Asgard, and to wrestle with the old woman and to run with the runner lock, and presently found that he'd been drinking up the sea, and wrestling with time, and racing with thought, describes us who are contending, amid these seeming trifles, with the supreme energies of nature. We fancy we have fallen into bad company and squalid condition, low debts, shoe-bills, broken glass to pay for, pots to buy, butcher's meat, sugar, milk, and coal. Set me some great task, ye gods, and I will show my spirit. Not so, says the good heaven. Plod and plough, vamp your old coats and hats, weave a shoestring. Great affairs and the best wine, by and by. Well, tis all phantasm, and if we weave a yard of tape in all humility, 
and as well as we can. Long hereafter we shall see it was no cotton tape at all, but some galaxy which we braided, and the threads were time and nature. We cannot write the order of the variable winds. How can we penetrate the law of our shifting moods and susceptibility? Yet they differ as all and nothing. Instead of the firmament of yesterday, which our eyes require, it is today an eggshell which coops us in. We cannot even see what or where our stars of destiny are. From day to day the capital facts of human life are hidden from our eyes. Suddenly the mist rolls up and reveals them, and we think how much good time is gone that might have been saved had any hint of these things been shown. A sudden rise in the road shows us the system of mountains and all the summits which have been just as near us all the year, but quite out of mind. But these alternations are not without their order, and we are parties to our various fortune. If life seem a succession of dreams, yet poetic justice is done in dreams also. The visions of good men are good. It is the undisciplined will that is whipped with bad thoughts and bad fortunes. When we break the laws, we lose our hold on the central reality. Like sick men in hospitals, we change only from bed to bed, from one folly to another, and it cannot signify much what becomes of such castaways, wailing, stupid, comatose creatures, lifted from bed to bed, from the nothing of life to the nothing of death. In this kingdom of illusions we grope eagerly for stays and foundations. There is none but a strict and faithful dealing at home, and a severe barring out of all duplicity or illusion there. Whatever games are played with us, we must play no games with ourselves, but deal in our privacy with the last honesty and truth. I look upon the simple and childish virtues of veracity and honesty as the root of all that is sublime in character. Speak as you think, be what you are, pay your debts of all kinds. I prefer to be owned as sound and solvent, and my word as good as my bond, and to be what cannot be skipped or dissipated or undermined, to all the éclat in the universe. This reality is the foundation of friendship, religion, poetry, and art. At the top or at the bottom of all illusions I set the cheat which still leads us to work and live for appearances, in spite of our conviction in all sane hours that it is what we really are that avails with friends, with strangers, and with fate or fortune. One would think from the talk of men that riches and poverty were a great matter, and our civilization mainly respects it. But the Indians say that they do not think the white man with his brow of care, always toiling, afraid of heat and cold, and keeping within doors, has any advantage of them. The permanent interest of every man is never to be in a false position, but to have the weight of nature to back him in all that he does. Riches and poverty are a thick or thin costume, and our life, the life of all of us, identical. For we transcend the circumstance continually, and taste the real quality of existence, as in our employments, which only differ in the manipulations, but express the same laws, or in our thoughts, which wear no silks and taste no ice-creams. We see God face to face every hour, and know the savour of nature. 
The early Greek philosophers Heraclitus and Xenophanes measured their force on this problem of identity. Diogenes of Apollonia said that unless the atoms were made of one stuff, they could never blend and act with one another. But the Hindus, in their sacred writings, expressed the liveliest feeling, both of the essential identity and of that illusion which they conceive variety to be. Quote, the notions I am and this is mine, which influence mankind, are but delusions of the mother of the world. Dispel, O Lord, of all creatures, the conceit of knowledge which proceeds from ignorance. End quote and the beatitude of men they hold to lie in being freed from fascination. The intellect is stimulated by the statement of truth in a trope, and the will by clothing the laws of life in illusions. But the unities of truth and of right are not broken by the disguise. There need never be any confusion in these. In a crowded life of many parts and performers, on a stage of nations, or in the obscurest hamlet in Maine or California, the same elements offer the same choices to each newcomer, and, according to his election, he fixes his fortune in absolute nature. It would be hard to put more mental and moral philosophy than the Persians have thrown into a sentence. Quote, fool thou must be, though wisest of the wise, then be the fool of virtue, not of vice. End quote. There is no chance and no anarchy in the universe. All is system and gradation. Every god is there, sitting in a sphere. The young mortal enters the hall of the firmament. There is he alone with them alone, they pouring on him benedictions and gifts, and beckoning him up to their thrones. On the instant, and incessantly, fall snowstorms of illusions. He fancies himself in a vast crowd which sways this way and that, and whose movement and doings he must obey. He fancies himself poor, orphaned, insignificant. The mad crowd drives hither and thither, now furiously commanding this thing to be done, now that. What is he that he should resist their will and think or act for himself? Every moment new changes and new showers of deceptions to baffle and distract him. And when, by and by, for an instant, the air clears and the cloud lifts a little, there are the gods still sitting around him on their thrones. They alone with him alone. The End End of Essay 9 End of Conduct of Life by Rolf Waldo Emerson